0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation. Solve your sister's murder.
2: If I was sitting down with him in the Oval Office, I would say, uh, you know, Mr. President, you are in the most important position on the face of the earth as President of the United States. What do we do about North Korea? The problem is you've really got to hurt them. And what we're doing now, frankly, does not hurt them. So if you're going to cut off fuel, cut off fuel. If you're going to cut off money, their banking system, cut it off. You've got to really hurt them really have to go through this all over
0: again. (laughs) This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the CypherBrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Welcome to Intelligence Matters, I'm Michael Morell. Leon Panetta is widely respected as one of the great statesmen of our times. I worked with him every day at the CIA, but there we always talked business. So I jumped at the opportunity to sit down with him and talk about the things we couldn't talk about then. I wanted to know what got Panetta interested in public service, how he thought about the key moments in his career. What did he think of his years as CIA director and secretary of defense? But I also wanted to know what he thinks today about the critical issues of our time. So we are very lucky, very lucky to have Secretary Leon Panetta as our first guest on Intelligence Matters. Um, I could not think... Of a better first guest to have, so, sir, thank you very much for being here.
2: Well, Michael, it's my, it's my honor and pleasure to uh, kick off this series uh, with you and to have a chance to be able to renew a, a friendship that is very dear to me.
0: We sat, uh, we sat at at the table at the CIA uh, many many times, but not in front of microphones. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is unusual. <laughs> To be talking to you with two <laughs> mics in front of us. <laughs> so, so I want to start by reading a list that will be very familiar to you but may not be familiar to, to our listeners. And that's a list of your, your, your public service. U.S. Army, legislative assistant to a U.S. congressman, um, assistant to the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. Um, now two different departments, HHS and, uh, and the Department of Education. Uh, the director of the Office of Civil Rights at HEW, which I'm going to want to come back to, the executive assistant to the mayor of New York City, U.S. congressman, director of the Office of Management and Budget um, at the White House, White House chief of staff, CIA director, and secretary of defense. And by my calculation, that's 40 years of public service, and that's not even counting um, the institute that you and your wife, Sylvia, started to inspire to inspire young men and young women to want to serve uh, serve their country. So with 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 all of that public service, what I'd really love to ask you is what's the source of your interest in public service and even more importantly your passion for it because clearly there's a passion here.
2: It, I, I, think, I think it really goes back to uh, being the son of uh, Italian immigrants who, like millions of others, came here with uh, very little money and very little language ability and, and very few skills, but uh, really did believe. I mean, I used to ask my father, why why did he do it, travel all that distance to come to a strange land? And he said uh, the reason was because we thought we could give our children a better life in this country, which I, I think is the American dream. And I've had really in many ways the privilege of living that dream. A lot of the inspiration comes from from my parents who stressed the fact that both my brother and I owed something back to the country because of what the country gave them. Uh, And I I really took that to heart, that we had a duty to give something back to the country. But secondly, the time I spent in the Army and working with a cross-section of people from across the country, different backgrounds, different places, different nationalities, but all involved in a common mission, to uh, help defend the country, and that that always resonated with me in terms of what we, what we have to do as citizens to give back to our democracy. And then lastly, there was a young president, John Kennedy, who at the time said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I really felt at that time that public service was a higher calling and was really interested and excited by the opportunity to uh, to get involved in in public service in some way and so I I really was passionate about that I really cared about it I I loved the excitement of being able to be a part of what our democracy is all about
0: your definition of the American dream um, I think is the definition that would resonate most with with immigrants I'm wondering if you're concerned that we're losing the American dream, or there is a risk that we may be losing the American dream. Are you are you worried about that?
2: Yeah, I do worry about it, because uh, this country, I think from its very beginnings, I think our forefathers, so the pioneers, the immigrants who came to this country, really were dedicated to making sure that our children had a better life, that they would always do better than they did, and... I worry about whether or not you know our children are going to have that better life, whether they 're going to be able to uh, enjoy the opportunities the the kind of future that we were able to inherit. I mean, look, my parents ran a restaurant in downtown Monterey during the Warriors. Uh, they worked very hard. My father was the chef, my mother would handle the cash register, my brother and I worked in that restaurant. They worked very hard. We worked very hard when we had a farm uh, in Carmel Valley, worked worked hard at it. So they really worked at it. And the reason they did it is because they wanted to give their children the best. And what I worry about today is whether or not our children are going to have that better life. Are we giving them uh, the educational opportunities, the skills, the abilities to really be able to expand their life? Uh, and make it a better life. I think we're at a point where probably our country could go in one of two directions. We could either be an American renaissance with a strong economy and lots of opportunities and that better life for our children, uh, or we could be an American decline if we can't govern ourselves or deal with the problems that face this country and are constantly in crisis. Uh, so we have a real choice as to whether or not our children are going to be able to have that better life.
0: So your time running the civil rights office at H-E-W, um your job was to enforce the civil rights laws. Your job was to enforce the equal education laws at the time. Um, and you ran into a little difficulty with, with the Nixon White House. Did you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, it, it probably goes back to um, when I was a legislative assistant to uh, Senator Kiekel from California. Uh, he was the minority whip from California under Everett Dirksen, who was the minority leader at the time. And when I started working for him, I immediately got involved in civil rights. Uh, this was when, you know, Lyndon Johnson was trying to get through some some really significant civil rights legislation that was landmark in what uh, was able to be accomplished. And it involved, in contrast to a lot of what we see today, both Republicans and Democrats working together to pass civil rights legislation. So when a senator uh, actually lost his primary in California, and uh, I kind of had to make a decision. Am I going to go back to California or stay in Washington? Uh, I got the opportunity through Secretary Bob Finch, who was another moderate Republican uh, from California, who became the uh, secretary of HEW, uh, Health, Education, and Welfare. And he asked me to come down and help him uh, organize the issues at uh, HEW, and I did. And I immediately got involved in civil rights issues because of my background and having worked on civil rights legislation and being a lawyer. And what happened was that uh, soon after I got there as an assistant to the secretary, he decided to appoint me as director of the Office for Civil Rights, which at that point was the main office that was enforcing equal education laws to make sure that particularly black children, white children, were being integrated and were getting uh, the same quality of education. It all came from Brown versus the Board of Education, which determined that uh, separate education is unequal education. So we had the responsibility to enforce that in the Office for Civil Rights and to make sure that any federal funding that came from uh, HEW would only go to school districts that were, in fact, acting against discrimination. And what had happened was that there had been a political deal that Richard Nixon had made when he was running for president. He was worried about Rockefeller running against him for president. And so to counter that, Nixon turned to the South. And in doing that, he kind of made a commitment to uh, a lot of the political leaders there that uh, if he were elected, he would uh, uh, back off uh, strong enforcement of civil rights laws. To get
0: those... Southern white votes.
2: Yeah, to get those Southern votes, and it was called the Southern Strategy, as a matter of fact. And while I was aware, you know, that uh, there had been some political deals, uh, I also felt that Nixon, because of his own background, having supported civil rights legislation, would nevertheless not want to retreat from the progress that had been made. What happened was, as I was enforcing the laws, uh, it became clear that the politics of uh, the Southern strategy were impacting and that, you know, I was being pressured to uh, back off of some strong enforcement in some very tough districts in the South. And I had to make a kind of fundamental decision at the time. I often tell the students at the Panetta Institute that it's the kind of decision you're probably going to have to face, which is a decision between whether you stand with your conscience of what you think is right or whether you decide to do something that will advance your career. And it's not that easy a decision. And so I had to face that, and I remember talking to my wife Sylvia about it, and uh, I think we both agreed that in the end I had to be true to my conscience. And I did. I I continued to enforce the law as I thought was right. Uh, And then then, uh, one morning as I was waking up in Washington and the newspaper uh, uh, hit our... uh, hit our door, I opened it up, and there was a story that Panetta had resigned as director of the Office for Civil Rights, which I had not. And I remember uh, immediately going to work and going to the secretary and saying, look, there's this, this story out there that I've resigned, and it's not true, as you know. And he said, no, no, deny it. It's just, you know, one of those stories. And we did. We continued to deny it until the presidential press conference at the White House, which we are all familiar with today. Uh, Ron Ziegler, who was the press secretary, was asked the question about whether Panetta had really resigned. And he said, yes, he has. <laughs> <laughs> and so,
0: yeah, I, suddenly, I suddenly realized <laughs> yeah, <you were> resigned. <laughs> I had resigned. <laughs> so this was, this was a moment of, of integrity, right? This was a test of integrity. It's one of those moments you where, you know, you have to make a very tough decision.
2: This is not an easy decision. It's tough. You know, I had a family. I had two boys. I had a third son on the way. And, you know, I was, I think I was in my late 20s, 27, 28. And I I could have probably risen into other career positions at HUW had I decided to stay and and play the political game. But, you know, it was one of those moments where, deep down, it was Senator Keekle who once said to me that in this town we're going to be tempted a lot. Yeah, here in Washington, and that uh, we always have to remember that our first responsibility is to the interests of the American people and the people of California. But he also said something I never forgot, which was that in the morning, when you wake up, you have to look at yourself in the mirror, which basically was the message that in the end you have to protect your own integrity mm-hmm. and what you think is right. And uh, I never forgot that. And it kind of served me well do you think, during a do, tough period. Do you,
0: do you think, looking at the arc of your career, that there there were more more public figures um, early on in your career who had that kind of integrity and who had that kind of character than there are today? Do you think we've lost something, or do you think?
2: Well, I you know I really learned under uh, some of the very best uh, in our time. When I when I went back, it was a, it was not just people like uh, Kekel and Everett Dirksen. On the Republican side, uh, there were names that probably a lot of your listeners won't remember, but people like Jacob Javits from New York, moderate Republican, Clifford Case from uh, New Jersey, Hugh Scott from Pennsylvania, George Aiken from Vermont, uh, Mark Hatfield, a number of, you know, kind of progressive, moderate Republicans who were willing to work with some giants at the time on the Democratic side. Hubert Humphrey, Henry Jackson, Magnuson, Symington, Fulbright, Dick Russell from Georgia, Sam Irvin from North Carolina, really giants. And they had their political differences. Let's not kid anybody. They had their political fights. But in the end, they were committed to doing what was right for the country. And so the result was that Republicans and Democrats really did work together on landmark legislation. And even when I got elected to Congress in 1976, Tip O'Neill... Was the Speaker of the House, kind of a Democrat's you Democrat? You served. You
0: served eight terms, elected so nine eight, times. Eight,
2: eight, eight terms in, uh, in the Congress. Was elected for the ninth term, and uh, Tip was the Speaker. Democrats, Democrat, uh, but he had a great friend in Bob Michael, who was the Minority Leader from Illinois, and uh, again they had their political differences, but when it came to issues, they worked together, and that's that's what I was taught to do, and I really believed in that. That that was the responsibility. I. I, At the time I, I was there, I think governing was considered good politics. I'm not so sure that there's a sense that governing is good politics today. It's rather, can you stop the other side? Can you beat up the other side? Can you get the soundbite? It's all about trench warfare.
0: What happened? What do you think happened? There's
2: a lot of factors that I think created uh, what we see today. I've often said I've seen Washington at its best and Washington at its worst. I saw Washington work. That's the good news. Washington can work. But I also saw uh, Washington at its worst, and um, there, there were these divisions that suddenly developed, deep partisan divisions that prevented both sides from working together for one reason or another. What are the reasons for it? Uh, there's no silver bullet here. It's a combination of things. I think, number one, the margin of power was very thin, uh, and so each party focused on how to obtain power, how to get control of the House or the Senate. Uh, So there was a lot more loyalty demanded uh, from the party. Uh, Secondly, particularly in in the House of Representatives, the whole issue of reapportionment. When you create safe Republican and safe Democratic seats, and that's usually the way the deal is made, what happens is that members then are concerned by people running in their own party against them. So Republicans are worried about Tea Party members running against them; that moves them further to the right. Democrats are worried about people on the left running against them; that moves them further to the left. And so, rather than having members closer to the center, uh, which is required to make deals, they were appealing to the extremes. Money in politics; too much money, awful lot of PACs now contributing huge amounts of money that are being raised, for, usually from special interests. And special interests are not interested in making a lot of changes in this town. And then lastly, uh, media, the 24-hour news cycle, focuses more on the conflict than on people working together. And so the parties basically play to that with sound bites in order to make, make an impact. So when you combine all of that, there is less of a willingness to take the risks to govern. And you cannot govern. You cannot make tough decisions unless you're willing to take a risk. And I think the leadership on both parties, I think a lot of the members have tried to avoid those risks and basically appealed to their own political base, and we're paying a price for that.
0: So in Congress, in Congress, you um, focused on civil rights, um, education, health care, agriculture, immigration, environmental protection, which I know you're very proud of. But maybe at the top of the list was, was the budget. Yeah. Um, you were chairman of the Budget Committee. That took you to uh, the Office of Management and Budget where you, where you continued to work it. And then you even continued to work it when you were White House Chief of Staff. And I kind of pulled the numbers. Um, and in, in 1989, when you became the chairman of the Budget Committee, we had a deficit of 3% of GDP. By 1998, so nine years later, with, with all of your work both in Congress and the White House, we had our first surplus – since 1969, and we had a surplus for four consecutive years. And I looked all the way back to 1929, and there was never a four-year period of surplus in the federal, in the federal budget. So how did you do that? And how important do you think that is you know, to the country? And how important is it to get back to it?
2: Well, it you know it it's very disappointing to have worked uh, most of my career in the Congress uh, and as OMB director to establish a balanced budget and a surplus, and then uh, suddenly watch it all go to hell and be in a situation today uh, where we're facing a twenty trillion dollar debt and you know having having this huge debt be a burden on our children for the future. It was you know it was look it was not easy then, and we were dealing with two three hundred billion dollar deficits at the time. And there was the same politics in, in a way. I mean, Republicans didn't want to raise taxes. They didn't want to cut defense. Democrats didn't want to cut discretionary programs. They didn't want to cut entitlements. And so there was a lot of political resistance. But then because of the leadership of not only the presidents at the time, but the leadership in the Congress, bipartisan leadership, There was a decision that we could not allow this to continue to happen. And so the result was we had a number of budget summits in which both parties said we're going to go into a room, put everything on the table, and develop a budget agreement to reduce the deficit and to put us on a track towards fiscal responsibility. And it was not easy, because when you put everything on the table, you're talking about then having to reduce non-defense spending, reduce defense spending, raise taxes, or reform entitlements and get savings out of entitlements. Pain pain for everybody. Pain for everybody. Tough decisions. And yet, I remember the first huge budget agreement was done in the Bush administration. We went out to Andrews Air Force Base, spent almost a month out there negotiating. uh, And we came back with a $500 billion deficit reduction package, $250 billion. In savings, largely out of entitlements, 250 billion in revenues, taxes, and to the credit of uh, the Bush administration and the Republicans who this were Bush working 41, with us, Bush 41, this is Bush 41, just Bush 41, tough decision because he said, he was the one who said, "Read my lips, no new taxes," but he was willing to do the right thing, and uh, we passed that budget, close vote, but we passed it. It was a strong budget, included some enforcement tools to really enforce budget discipline. Uh, In the Clinton administration, we did exactly the same thing. Another $500 billion deficit reduction package, $250 billion in uh, savings, $250 billion in uh, revenues, new taxes. And the combination of those two agreements plus uh, others uh, led to what we have now, which which we had at the time, which was a balanced budget and then ultimately a surplus. But it took tough decisions. And look, there's no question in my mind that there are probably members— who lost their seats because of that vote, Mm. because it was tough, but it was the right thing to do. And today, it requires the same kind of courage by members to recognize we aren't going to deal with a $20 trillion debt by simply continuing to kick the can down the road, which is what we do now. Instead of confronting these tough issues and tough decisions— uh, what's happened is that Congress, for the last 10 years, has basically avoided making tough decisions, kicked the can down the road, done continuing resolutions just keep government funded, never really developed any certainty in the federal budget. And the result is now, if we continue to do this, we're looking at a debt that today is 77% of GDP, going up to over 100% of GDP. And that'll... that'll eat us alive in terms of our economy, our future. We talked about kids having a better life. Uh, it's going to really undermine their ability to have that better
0: So-called life. fiscal cliff that people talk about. Yeah, from exactly. Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and the, ne- the demographics of the country. And- you
2: know, if you combine you know, what we're paying on entitlements and Social Security and health care, combined with uh, the fact that we're seeing this huge demographic change occurring, and at the same time, uh, this resistance to being able to do real tax reform that can produce some additional revenues for this country, which we're going to need for the future. I mean, we need, we need to get back to that discipline. And the leadership of this country from the president on down needs to, needs to make the decision that this country has to discipline its budget for the future. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have an uncertain economy. I don't know that we'll ever really have strong growth in this country or that we'll have a strong economy if we continue to run these size debts. That's the reality.
0: One of the things I noticed when I was looking at the data was, was as the budget deficit was coming down and moving into surplus, we had extraordinarily strong growth above 4%. So that correlation, you know, I, just jumped out at me.
2: Oh, no. I mean, there's no question that budget discipline is a real key to our ability to send a signal to Wall Street, to the securities markets, that we have disciplined the fiscal side of the budget. We've tried to operate for too long using the Federal Reserve as kind of the key to hopefully keeping our economy strong. And frankly, you know, Congress and the presidency have taken a walk on their responsibility to deal with the fiscal side. If we're going to have a strong economy, if we're going to have one that can really grow, we've got to be able to put that kind of discipline in place. In the Clinton administration, when we were making these tough decisions on entitlements, and we got savings out of Medicare, we got savings out of Medicaid, out of farm support prices, out of veterans programs, out of retirement programs. These are all tough, tough decisions to make. But at the same time, the president also decided that we had to make investments, investments in research, in education, in areas like training for the future. And so you can can be fiscally disciplined, develop a budget that really does reduce the deficit and put us on the right track for the future, and at the same time make the investments that are important for this country to make, and develop a five-year, a ten-year budget track so that everybody kind of knows where we're headed. I'm often asked about the defense budget. The worst thing about the defense budget today is uncertainty. I mean, you can talk all you want about, you know, we ought to increase our defense budget. But if there's uncertainty as to what that defense budget is going to be, and that's the case today, that's the worst thing that can affect not only the decision makers at DOD, but the people that are making our weapon systems for the future. They don't know whether or not what they're being told is really going to be the
0: truth. So you uh, leave Washington, two thousand and one. You go back to California. You uh, start the Panetta Institute. And eight years later, uh, your phone rings, and um, President Obama wants you to come back to Washington and be his CIA director. Talk about that a little bit. How you thought about that, and when when, when that phone call came. And
2: well, you know, when I left as uh, as chief of staff, I think uh, both Sylvia and I thought, you know, we've had a great. Public service career. It's time to go back home to Monterey and love our home. And we were at the time we were concerned about young people not being interested in public service, uh, in the same way that I was inspired to get involved in public service. So that's what made us decide to start our institute to try to inspire young people to get involved. And uh, we did that. We established the institute. It was running strong. You know, I was doing some things here in Washington. Uh, I was working on ocean issues. I was working on some fiscal issues. I was working on some uh, areas involving foreign policy. Uh, I was on the Iraq study group right, right. Uh, and worked on, on Iraq.
0: With Secretary uh, Gates.
2: That's right. So, you know, I was, I was obviously continuing my interests. But then when the call came, and it first came from Rahm Emanuel, who I knew from the, my days in the Clinton administration— and Rom suggested that the president was thinking of appointing me a CIA director. And I said, what the hell are you thinking about? <laughs> because, you know, I mean, I worked on budgets, I worked on ocean issues. But, you know, the last time I really worked on intelligence stuff was as an Army officer and you know, an intelligence Army officer. Although, you know, I'd worked as uh, chief of staff to the president. And as budget director, you, you obviously deal with those issues. But I said, what, what's, what's this about? And he said that the president really thought that I could help restore trust, because the CIA had had some real problems with Capitol Hill with both parties uh, in terms of the job it was doing. And I thought about it, and when the president called, you know, I I shared the concerns, but he said, I really do want you to reestablish the credibility of the CIA, and it comes at a difficult time, still involved in the war on terrorism, still looking for bin Laden, and— Every job i've taken throughout my career, I think I've always enjoyed the challenges in those jobs, and I really looked at it as a great challenge.
0: My sense was that this was something special your your time at CIA was something special yeah for you
2: it was it was it was special first of all because of the great people that work there. i really am meeting people like yourselves and others uh, that you know spent their lives at CIA and i could I could see the commitment that they had to uh, to our country this was even I you know you you watch the Bond movies and you watch the other stuff and you think you know you see kind of this glamorous and some kinds dramatic side of the CIA but the reality is this is about hard work this is about real dedication to some very tough challenges to be able to provide uh, the intelligence necessary to the president, but also to do the operations that can help protect our country, and I and I saw that and saw the dedication, uh, and also recognized that we were living at a time when our country our country was under threat from terrorists who were prepared to blow us up again the way they had. On it was Idaho. the dominant
0: issue of your time? When That's right. It was the, the dom- it
2: was the dominant issue. We were protecting the country. This is a different enemy. It's not like you were fighting them on the battlefield. Uh, The battlefield here uh, was our own country and a lot of the countries abroad. And it really demanded a kind of different approach. And intelligence, in many ways, helped provide that different approach because of the way we operated and the way we were capable of kind of developing the real hardcore intelligence that you absolutely needed if you were going to go after bad guys. That it wasn't just a, a matter of moving a line on a battlefield. This was a question of really deciding where those targets are and going after them, and we really developed that capability. And then obviously it all came together when we had the operation to go after bin Laden, and to be able to be a part of that was something that I'll never forget because it was truly a a pinnacle in my own career. Well, you
0: drove it. I mean, you you were very demanding of us right? to push this as hard as you can possibly push it. Um, I remember those meetings. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you know, Michael, I, I've often uh, I'm often asked when you take over OMB or CIA or the Defense Department, you know, what, what's the what's the key? And I really think the key is that you've got to build a team and be able to have people who not only trust each other but trust you. And if you can if you can build that kind of team sense then there's almost nothing you can't accomplish. And I really felt that at CIA that we we were a team. We all we were all committed to the same mission. But to do that you you have to be honest with one another. And sometimes it requires frankly kicking ass mm-hmm. that you know you have a goal, everybody's committed to getting the goal, but sometimes some people aren't as dedicated on a day-to-day basis of going after that goal mm-hmm. and you really got to push mm-hmm. people. And or I they don't see that.
0: the possibilities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: no, yeah, they don't. They don't see, you know, the kind of they've been working in the forest. Right. <laughs> right. Sometimes
0: right. You, right. you can't stand back and yeah. look at, uh, you know, what, what it's all about. So there's two things I wanted to ask you about about terrorism. The first is is that while we were hunting Al Qaeda, while we were hunting Bin Laden, mostly in in South Asia, you recognized. Maybe earlier than most, the spread of extremism. Um, I don't know if you remember that 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 you s- called me into your office and you said, "Look, these guys are are in Yemen and they're in Somalia and they're north in North Africa, right? And we're focused on them in South Asia and we've got to take a bigger approach here." Do you remember that? Yeah, I
2: do. I, I remember the And concern. there's a
0: story out there. There's, there's this false narrative out there that CIA didn't see the spread of extremism, right, which is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, no. I, I think we, we did sense. I mean, we, we saw what was happening that, you know, obviously our focus was on going after the leadership of al-Qaeda, uh, most of them located in Pakistan, and that was, a, that was an important thrust of what we were doing. But at the same time, we saw what was happening elsewhere. And that terrorism had metastasized uh, into, uh, you know, different versions of al-Qaeda in Yemen, in Iraq, Boko Haram. Uh, and, and
0: ultimately ISIS flowed you know, from one of those pieces. That's right. right?
2: Al-Shabaab and then all, oh, yeah. now ISIS. Yeah. And I, I remember very well saying "We got, we have to look at the bigger picture here because, you know, ultimately we probably could— be successful at decimating their leadership in Pakistan. But if we aren't paying attention to these other areas, we're gonna find ourselves behind the eight ball in terms of the inability to develop the intelligence, the targeting, the counterterrorism operations that you need to try to press this issue uh, in these other areas. And the other thing was that I think the Arab Spring, which is probably something we really didn't see coming, that the Arab Spring, which was hopeful at the beginning, turned into a situation where these failed states became the breeding grounds for terrorism in the future. I I remember talking to Bill McRaven, who was the head of special forces at the time, and saying, we have really got to develop a military intelligence plan that focuses not just on uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, but really looks at that broader issue of uh, the Middle East and these failed states and what we can do to deal with that. And we were beginning to build that, right. I, I felt, right. at the time. I mean, right. we, we were establishing operations in Yemen. To do that, you had to build intelligence networks, which is not easy. Suddenly, you got to start developing the assets you need to give you the intelligence on this stuff. That's not easy. It takes a lot of work. But we were beginning to do that. And I really felt that because of the work that CIA did, we had a little bit of an edge going into trying to deal with those terrible developments that we have seen in these last few years take place in the Middle East. Right.
0: And without, without dealing with those, right, this is a generational problem.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, no question. I
0: mean, we focused on taking guys who had already been radicalized off the battlefield, right, but um, stopping the radicalization of people in the first place, is an extraordinarily difficult problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, it really is a combination of things that that need to be focused on here. I think we did learn a lot about how to confront the enemy that was there, and our ability to not only develop intelligence, to share intelligence, to work with the military, to go after targets. I mean, I think we developed some tremendous capabilities to do that. But... I also think that we never really developed a strategy to deal with the root causes of terrorism. And I see that even in, in our own country where you know we have to deal with gang warfare, we've we've struggled to try to figure out what is it that drives kids to gangs and and kind of uh, appeals to their ego and to their identity and to their dissatisfaction the sense and their frustration of and their sense of self-worth. And that's very much the case with regards to to terrorism, that they appeal to young people who are frustrated and angry and don't really feel like they have much of a life. But we've never cracked the code of how we get those kids to turn to a better life. And in many ways, I don't know that the United States can do this. I mean, we we can help. But the only way we're going to do that is if we build an Arab coalition that is willing to confront that problem. They have to take this on. They have to do that.
0: So you're sitting in CIA, and I'm your deputy, and there's all sorts of rumors floating around Washington that you're going to be the next secretary of defense. And you keep on telling me, no, it's not true. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I love it here. And it's my first real political scoop, right, that I've got it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, that you're not leaving. So I'm telling all my friends, he's not leaving. He's not (laughs) leaving. And then you end up... And then you end up. How did they convince you to do that?
2: Well, you know, I, one thing throughout that career that you described is that I really never, I really n- never kind of made the decision that, you know, I was going to go after a particular career position. This is where I wanted to go. This is what I wanted to be. I just always felt that the most important thing you could do in public service is do a good job in the job you're in. And if you do a good job, other opportunities come along. That's what I tell the students at the Panetta Institute. You know, you're going to be an intern. Do a damn good job as intern, and other opportunities will come along. And I, I, you know, I generally kind of followed that track. I mean, I, I made the decision, obviously, to run for Congress. But, you know, getting the job at, uh, at OMB, getting the job as chief of staff, getting the job at CIA or secretary of defense were not jobs that I, frankly, had sought there were opportunities that presidents presented to me and, and said, are you, are you interested in doing it? And as I said, if I thought the job involved a challenge and it came from the President of the United States, I thought it was worth doing. And so I think that it's really important that what you do is to focus on doing the best job, setting goals, accomplishing those goals, and then kind of moving on. Mm-hmm. Your, your yellow legal pad. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, those goals are on my le- yellow yep. legal pad, and yep. those are the things that I focused on. And frankly, I always thought it was also important when you leave a job to leave it on a high, never leave it on a downer. And so when at CIA, we had just done the Bin Laden operation. It was kind of the pinnacle of everything we had worked to do. And I thought this is probably not not a bad time to get the hell out of Washington, <laughs> frankly, and go back home. <laughs> and, and, and Sylvia, you know, was anxious to get me back home. And I thought, yeah, this is probably a good time. And the president then said, no, you know, well, I, I'm interested in your becoming secretary of defense. And I told him, I said, look, I said, I, I really like to go back home. I think we did a great job at, at CIA and served you well. And I don't, you know, I think a, a new secretary ought to be here probably for, for eight years instead of just the next two years. And I said, look, you know, why don't you look at somebody like Colin Powell or look at somebody other uh, that might be able to take that job? And they kept coming back. And finally, the president called and said, I really need you. I don't really have any other choice. And we're at a tough time in terms of kind of looking to the future of what's going to happen with the defense budget. And so, again, another challenge.
0: And uh, I decided to to do it at that hard point. to say no when he says exactly. That. Yeah. No. So the one question to ask about your time at DOD is I've I've always been struck by former Secretary of State George Shultz's description of what you need to do to be successful in foreign policy, and he says, "Say what you mean, do what you say, and carry a big stick." <laughs> and, um, and 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 I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on how big does that stick need to be, and what does it need to look like for the Department of Defense to be able to protect the United States of America?
2: Well, I, I think that for America to exercise the kind of world leadership that I think is really important for this country to do, I am very much a believer, coming out of World War II, that we really have a responsibility to uh, provide leadership in a very dangerous world. And that, frankly— You know, I I know there's been a lot of talk about in recent years, America can't do everything, can't others step up to the plate, can't we just simply retreat into Fortress America. But the problem is, if America doesn't provide that leadership, the reality is no one else will. And so I'm a believer that America has to lead in that world. And the only way we can lead, kind of using George Shultz's term is to carry a big stick. That talk is just talk, but you've got to show that you're willing to back it up with strength.
0: And that you can.
2: And that you can do it, and that you will not hesitate to do it if you have to. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I think we have to be the strongest military power on the face of the earth, which doesn't mean just throwing money at defense. I think we have to make good decisions about, you know, what are the weapon systems we need, Uh, What what is the kind of technology we have to develop for the future? I think we can be a very agile defense force for the future. And we've got the very best men and women in uniform who are willing to put their lives on the line for this country. So I really do believe we, we need to have a strong national defense to be there for the President of the United States in the event that we really do have to take action To protect our security. I mean, in the end, you know, I I always felt the fundamental role I had at CIA and at the Defense Department was the responsibility to protect our country and protect the safety of the people of this country. That's our job. And to do that, I wanted to be very sure that anything that the President of the United States said, you got to do, we were able to get done.
0: So put all of this experience together, Right. What what do we do about the critical national security issue that's facing us at the moment? Perhaps the the most serious we've seen since the Cuban missile crisis, North Korea. How do we get how do we get our arms around this, do you think?
2: Well, as you know, we've been struggling with this for a long time, uh, over 60 years. And it's been it's been a roller coaster ride. We've gone through an effort to accommodate them uh periodically, and then uh, we've gone through long periods of provocation. And we have not been able to kind of break through and really develop some kind of long-term solution to where North Korea is going for the future. We just have not been able to do it. And now we're probably facing the most serious threat we've ever faced from North Korea. I mean, uh, they are going headlong, straight ahead, to uh, developing an ICBM and uh, perhaps a miniaturized nuclear weapon. And I could, frankly, see that happening within the next year, based on progress they've been making on testing, etc. That, to me, represents a direct threat to our national security. I mean, that issue of how do we protect our people, my God, if you've got a country that's unpredictable with a a leader who is totally unpredictable uh, and cruel and Inhuman, having the potential of sending an ICBM that could strike the United States of America. That's a real threat. How do you deal with this? I think the key is that you've got to make very clear that the United States is not going to pull back from the position of supporting Seoul uh, and supporting South Korea, supporting Japan, that we are going to protect those countries and we're going to protect ourselves. And we're going to take every, all the steps necessary to do that. Look, the fundamental policy has been one of deterrence and containment. I don't think that can change. I think that's where we're at. The options are not good. We would love to have a diplomatic option. That's not there. The military option, uh, we know what the consequences of that could be. It'd be horrific. It'd be a nuclear war uh, and certainly the huge destruction of uh, South Korea and Seoul. So I think you're left with, de- with deterrence and containment. And I guess the key in my mind is how do you tighten that noose? How do you tighten the noose? And to do that, it seems to me, you continue to build up our military capabilities there. You provide whatever supports South Korea and Japan need. I think you have to develop a missile shield. That raises not one question about our ability to take down a missile if we
0: have to fundamentally undermine his objective that's of right. being able to hit us that's exactly
2: right to make very clear that we have an effective missile shield that we we are not just going to suddenly allow him to fire missiles willy-nilly i think you've got to obviously strengthen sanctions i know the un took steps to try to increase sanctions but i i think the problem is you've really got to hurt him and what we're doing now frankly does not hurt him because they found ways around it And so if you're going to cut off fuel, cut off fuel. If you're going to cut off money, their banking system, cut it off. You've got to really hurt them. And in some ways, that's what happened in Iran. Exactly. That's what happened in South Africa, is we really hurt them. We're not hurting them. They're finding ways around it through Russia, through China, through other other means. We've got to really hurt them. So if we combine, if we tighten that noose on those areas— And then, you know, get our diplomats to say, you want us to continue to do this? Because in the end, let's be very clear, if you
0: provoke us in the wrong way, your regime comes to an end. Total annihilation. That's right. Sir, two final questions. One is um, your son Jimmy just elected to Congress in your old district, his first term uh, as as a U.S. congressman. What advice did you give him?
2: Well, as I as I told Jimmy, I, I know said, you're very proud of him. I, yeah, we are. Sylvia and I are very proud of him. Uh, and when he decided to run for Congress, I kind of I kind of looked at her and said, "Do we really have to go through this all over <laughs> again?" <laughs> which we did. Which we did. Went to fundraisers and did all the things you have to do when I was running for office. And Jimmy did it. Did it successfully. And you know, of, of all the three sons, and we're proud of all three of them. Jimmy was the one that we kind of. You know, it was obvious that he had an interest in public service. And he learned a lot. He can't plead ignorance going back to, uh, to this Congress because he knows the dysfunction that's part of Congress. But what's been really great to see is that he really enjoys the, the camaraderie and his colleagues in the Congress, both Republican and Democrat. He's frustrated by the inability to get things done because this is a guy who served in Afghanistan as frankly, there are a number of younger members who are veterans. It's
0: a very interesting group, isn't it? It is, and they're on both sides of the aisle.
2: And they both share the same frustration. And he is now part of something called the Solutions Caucus, you know, made up of about 20 or 22 Democrats and Republicans that are really seriously trying to address issues on a bipartisan way. And I don't know, you know, it's going to be tough. It's it's going to be tough to get the leadership to go along with this stuff. But I think if they could form a nucleus of members who are really interested in trying to solve problems, that there could be an opportunity to get back to the kind of Congress that I knew, Mm. which is a Congress that was willing to govern and solve problems. I really think that's what he wants to be a part of. And I you know i wish him well i'm i'm afraid uh, michael that th- this town and the dysfunction here is not going to change from the top down i wish it would yeah but
0: i'm not sure it's going to change from you're the top you're describing a bottom up change i think it's going to be yeah, a bottom up yeah. change and then the last question which is if you had if you had an opportunity to give some advice to our president what would you tell him
2: you know i guess if i if i was sitting down with him in the oval office i would say uh, You know, Mr. President, you are in the most important position on the face of the earth as President of the United States. And you bear a responsibility to hold the trust of the American people, and for that matter, a lot of the world, in your hands. And if you're not going to exercise that trust in a way that really tries to solve the problems that face this country, then I think you will have violated that trust. And so the real challenge for you, Mr. President, is not just to say you, you want an America that's great again. It's how do you get that done? And to do that, you really do need to develop bipartisan coalitions. You really do need to bring both Democrats and Republicans together. Frankly. I think this president, who's not really a Republican or a Democrat, probably could exercise an independent streak that could possibly develop that kind of coalition. As you showed last week. That's right. But to do that, people have got to trust you. And that's the one challenge that I think is still very much up in the air for this president.
0: Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, for brought time. back great memories. and. Uh, it was great to have a conversation with you.
2: No, it's great. Uh, great to have this uh, moment to be together with you and to bring back uh, memories that will always be close to my heart.
0: My conversation with former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. I'm Michael Morrell. Join me next week for Intelligence Matters. <laughs>